Welcome to the Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast. It is episode 91 for Monday, February 19th, 2024. It's President's Day. Glad you're here. Killer Bees on the show today. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Welcome. Morning, Danny. And we got Dr. Brian Jacobson, chief economist. Welcome to you. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. And thanks to everybody who keeps coming back week after week. If you do like what you hear, please share it with a friend, colleague, family member, even an enemy. You know, may as well share the love. We really enjoy making these. We love doing it. And so appreciate you coming back to listen. Uh, let's take a look at what to expect for this week. Uh, it's a little bit on the light side, I think, in terms of data releases. The big highlight for me is probably going to be on Wednesday. The Federal Open Market Committee, the minutes from their most recent meeting will be released. It's always a good read. It will help put you to sleep, that's for sure. Although as an economist, I like looking as far as the different pronouns and nouns and quantifiers that they use in order to determine uh, where different people stand on the issues. And I think the big question now is how soon or how late might they start cutting rates? How much more evidence do they need in order to have the confidence in order to do so? And then on Thursday, we get the usual weekly initial, initial jobless claims numbers, and then the preliminary S&P PMI manufacturing for Feb February and the services number as well, as far as how is the strength of the service and manufacturing sector looking. So those are kind of the big things that I'm looking forward to. Uh, when we look back at last week, Blaine, uh, any kind of big things that pop out to you as far as pockets of strength? Yeah, so we had two really hot prints coming from CPI and then kind of got confirmation of that in PPI and the, I think it caught some of the markets off guard which hasn't been a surprise really when you look at how well the Fed has actually messaged they could go back and I think people still use transitory as a joke but since transitory and beyond and the Fed trying to message you know where inflation is where inflation's going and how the economy's doing they've actually done quite a good job mm -hmm. came into the year with market trying to price in roughly six cuts at one point fed said no maybe three as of friday the market almost was pricing in close to three and a half cuts for the year now so within a matter of a month and a half mm -hmm. you've had the market adjust what the fed has actually been messaging whether or not that plays out to the way it should be but the market's kind of actually listening to the fed now and the fed hasn't really wavered in their messaging around that with the higher for longer mm -hmm. it's just that the market is now starting starting to listen so. that's right and I, I think that's really important that the market is finally almost on the same page or seeing eye to eye with the fed on that because coming into the year we were really worried about that disconnect that if you take the fed at their word why was the market pricing in something much more aggressive the bridging of the gap between the two. So bringing the two together between the Fed, what they're saying and projecting and what the market was pricing in is bound to bring volatility. And mm -hmm. I think that is what we have seen. Obviously, equity markets have moved up. It's recovered. But a lot of yield volatility that yeah. has been very heightened. Yeah, we've bounced from, I mean, going back to beginning of November last year, 5% on the 10-year down to around 375 going into January, and now we're back around 4.3. Mm -hmm. We're talking 1, 1.5% movements here, but it's on 10-year treasuries, which carry a lot of duration and a lot of movement inside of what the price of the bond does itself. So we got a lot of volatility, like you said, and it's interesting to see 
in the face of the Fed not cutting or with the market trying to price that in now that we've seen that strength in the equity markets that we have, it's getting to a point where growth is starting to, I guess from my standpoint, growth is starting to get priced in more appropriately mm-hmm. instead of focusing so much on inflation, inflation, inflation. True. Yeah, that's a really good point about uh, the focus of the market almost shifting from inflation to growth to inflation to growth and back again. And I'm curious how many sell-side research reports will start hearing about calls for recession or not. That was really the topic of the year in 2023 was the recession call. Coming into this year, it seemed like a lot of people were saying that, okay, soft landing, they'll stick the landing. And are they going to stick with that tune or not? You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. Now that the market has really priced in that the Fed is going to probably start cutting, let's say in July, maybe do three for this year. Does that bring a hard landing back on the table, or does it really reflect conviction that there's going to be that no landing scenario? Yeah, and the market's pricing in kind of that no landing scenario. Uh, And the way we can see that is in credit spreads to a degree. Credit spreads are historically tight. Um, you, You look at what you're getting compensated for by owning a corporate bond versus owning a treasury. And if you're just looking in the investment grade space, you know, on a good single A credit, you're getting 60 basis points over treasuries, which historically should be closer to 90 or 100 mm-hmm. if you're looking at uh, the historical norm. So people are pricing in low default risk. Mm-hmm. With that, you can kind of infer that, you know, if there's this no landing scenario still getting priced in, in in the credit markets, at least. Now, should that 60 basis point or 50 basis point spread that you're getting compensated, is that really worth your time and, and worthwhile? Uh, that's up for debate, right? But from that standpoint, if there is anything to come through to show that we're not necessarily going to have a soft or no landing, would suggest that spread should widen out just a little bit there. Yeah, it was interesting with the retail sales numbers that came out for January about how weak those were. And so this is some of the weaknesses, right? We had the hot CPI number, hot PPI number, uh, weak retail sales. And the retail sales, when I was looking at the different components, it did seem like maybe some of it's weather related, but not all of it. You don't get this big 0.8% month-on-month move down just as payback from the warm December that we had transitioning to the frigid January that really did freeze some of the spending. I, I thought it was interesting looking at the report how people still prioritized eating and drinking so that you know food service and drinking establishments, those sales actually went up even though you saw just about every other category go down. People have their priorities. But the weakness there as far as with the retail sales sales, will that continue? It seems like it did spreads widen a little bit during that, but it, it, it seems like things it have been did stayed a bit. pretty It really contained. was more around the, the CPI print initially. And Brian, we've talked and talked with the team about this is the dynamic of when rates go up, historically speaking, spreads tend to tighten because now you have rates are rising, not necessarily because of inflation, but mm-hmm. because of growth prospects, yep. right? What's occurred recently is as rates have gone up, we've actually seen some spread widening, which is a break in that relationship. And it's something that we're watching as to whether or not that that holds or if rates are coming down because inflation expectations are coming down. Well, then rates and spreads have actually been contracting. And we saw that really go from November to the end of the year where that relationship really flipped on its head from what Mm -hmm. it historically has. 
Yeah, there's been a lot that has kind of flipped on its head from historical relationships. I think unusual is the new usual. Yeah, and I think a lot of that's coming from this hyperinflation period and coming off of that hyperinflation and some of those, what we've looked at in a historical standpoint, right? Over 40 years, you've had inflation pretty steady or Mm -hmm. normal, where now we're going through a different really economic impact to everyone. Not necessarily that it's hindering growth per se, but it's definitely changed some of the the relationships when you're looking at at fixed income specifically. Yeah, like the correlation between stocks and bonds that really did change uh, coming out of COVID. You know, 1984 until about 1999, the period of the Great Moderation, which was named that because you had decent growth, but more stable. You had falling inflation. Inflation was much more stable. That really introduced a period of time in which stock and bond prices would be negatively correlated. So, you know, stocks would zig and then bonds would zag. So you had that negative correlation. But now that inflation has come back and it's volatile, now you have a situation where that correlation is more positive, where you can have stocks and bonds both rallying at the same time. I'm expecting that we're probably going to see that revert more to kind of the historical quote-unquote norm which is closer to like a zero correlation. So not necessarily very strongly negative, but not nearly as strongly positive. Still a diversifier to a degree. Exactly. Still a diversifier. Maybe not as strong of a diversifier, but still a diversifier nonetheless. So look at fixed income for, oh, I don't know, income maybe? Right, right. (laughs) You're actually getting compensated now to have it. That's right. So from a weakness standpoint, obviously retail sales came in weak. Just one odd caveat to... The fixed income markets, the munis generally have a somewhat strong January just from a technical standpoint. Individuals who are investing in munis are generally high income earners, usually get their year end bonuses around the end of the year, right? Year end. And that money then sometimes finds its way into the municipal market. At the same time, municipalities are still working through their budget. They haven't necessarily brought debt to market. So you have this lower supply going through January. Uh, and that didn't actually really come come through in January. So it's just an odd technical from that standpoint. But January showed a bit of a weak month for municipal, municipal bonds, which uh, hasn't always been the case. So just an odd seasonality uh, impact there that is out of the norm. Yeah. Does that create any opportunities? You know, when I'm looking across, let's say just on equities, uh, I would say that some of the valuations on like energy, consumer cyclicals, materials are looking a lot more attractive. Obviously, that means that the fundamentals could deteriorate because if, you know, let's say a price to earnings ratio is very low, does that mean the price needs to go up or that the earnings are going to fall, right? That's a a matter of opinion and a matter of the outlook, but it does look like there are some pretty compelling opportunities in those areas. But, you know, what about in the, you know, credit markets or anything like that? Anything that's kind of screaming for opportunities or are these more little whispers of opportunities? In the credit space specifically, we've seen energy kind of lag as far as spreads tightening. And some of that has to do with obviously oil prices being where they are and uh, going through some of the, the cyclicality, if you will, of supply demand in the oil markets. But for the most part, a lot of the investment grade oil companies today have net cash balance sheets. They're 
strongly capitalized. They aren't making massive investments like they did going through 2015, 14, if you will, going into the the shale issue that we saw. From that standpoint, there could be some opportunity there just with the spreads that you're getting and the compensation you're getting. They're also, if we're going to go outside of credit, and we talked about this uh, on the team this week is, you know, when do tips potentially mm-hmm. show up in a portfolio or when is a good time to enter into a treasury inflation protected security? And it's not necessarily right after a hot CPI or a yep. PPI print, yet we get those questions, right? Clients want to know like, okay, inflation seems to be back on. Should we pile into to tips? And it's actually on the opposite of that. When you go through a credit event or you go through some sort of rush into treasuries and you get this bid on treasuries and inflation expectations actually plummet is mm-hmm. when we've noticed is the time to actually bring tips in. So we've looked at the data on that as far as uh, the relationship between treasury inflation protected securities and nominal treasuries, like which one do you want when? And after you see the fall in inflation expectations, it's almost like waiting to buy at the bottom, right? I mean, that's kind of what you try to do. If Is there a crash or a crisis of some, uh, some sort? So it's not necessarily when inflation expectations are high. It's when they're low and then people get surprised, right? So when they do come in much lower, and then you try to ride the increase in the break-evens or the inflation expectations, and where they are now, I don't know. I mean, based on the outlook, I'm not sure inflation expectations are really going to go much higher. And so it might pay to kind of think about waiting in terms of when to add tips to a portfolio uh, in general, I do like looking at them for the real yield. You know, there is that difference between do you own them in a fund or do you own them outright as individual bonds? And so it's a little different in that regard, I think. Yeah, and we've played around with those ideas too on the team. We work through that in our modeling and how we price that in. And is it really going to come through in the impact that we think it would with inflation expectations rising or is duration inside of that mm-hmm. security itself going to override what you're actually picking up from the expectations increasing? So yeah, that's actually a really good point is that most people think of tips as, oh, if inflation goes up, I'm going to make money on the tips. Well, not necessarily because they're bonds. They are long duration bonds. And so if interest rates go up, you know, that inflation compensation is is really going to be maybe uh, kind of uh, small and low comfort if rates also go up because yeah. what you lose in the principal for the interest rate increase, you know, the break even that you get isn't enough to make up for that. And actually, I think when I look at tips, I always have to remind myself that that break even, what does that really mean? It is if inflation comes in above that break even, then you are further off owning the tips as opposed to the nominal. But if inflation comes in at it or below it, then you want to own the nominal. Right. And then you could, if you really want to get one step further, are you then getting compensated enough in the credit markets to even own the tip or own the treasury? Like yep. you play all those games out to, and that's what we do on the team, right? Like what what is going to give the best risk adjuster return to sure. the investors? So. Because you also have floating rates that yep. you can look at and uh, MBS, uh, right. mortgage-backed securities. Uh, any opinions on that area? Yeah, that was one other area we wanted to hit on. You know, when you look at the mortgage-backed security market, it's got a bad rap going back to the great financial crisis and then going through the recent COVID issues with inflation popping up and everyone getting beat up with extension risk and 
and so forth. But today, where where those securities sit, if you find a good seasoned mortgage-backed security that has been around for let's just say five years or more, client like the people who have those mortgages have gone through a period where they could have refinanced, right? Mm-hmm. Interest rates came down significantly going through COVID. So they had their opportunity to refinance. So from that standpoint, prepayment risk is out of the, out the window. You have extension risk already priced in because rates are where they are now. And so if you can find something near par, you mm-hmm. can kind of just take that. They're priced right now where you're getting a hundred basis points over treasuries. So you have no credit risk because it's backed by the government essentially. You don't really have prepayment risk because the people who still have those mortgages are likely not to refinance because they could have already. And then from an extension standpoint, it's already been priced in because rates are where they are. So if you can just take the extra 100 basis points over treasuries, it's kind of a win-win for anyone Mm -hmm. who's looking for some sort of steady stream of income. Sure. Kind of makes me wonder why it is that those opportunities still are out there. Yeah. And I think some of that comes back to the supply-demand dynamic where the Fed is shrinking their balance sheet. They had mortgage-backed securities that they are trying to get rid of, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's one of the first asset classes on their balance sheet that they want out of. And then on top of that, going through March of last year with the banking situation that popped up, you had a number of banks that were forced to liquidate those mortgage-backed securities from their balance sheets as well. So you had this like unintended or unforeseen excess supply come into the market and just not enough people there to pick it up on the demand side. So it's still kind of sitting out there as um, pieces that you can pick up. Yeah, and they're probably small pieces too. So some of the bigger institutional investors, it might not be worth their time to purchase $10,000 worth or even a million worth. You know, they want to go in those bigger... Generally speaking, it's for institutions to be interested, it's 5 million or more. So it's, you know, if anything's under that, it starts to kind of be called an odd lot, if you will. But... For typical investors, that's five million is a pretty significant amount of money. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's opportunities that are sitting yeah, out odd, there. Odd lots; those are like table scraps, but you can have quite a feast right. from uh, enough table scraps there. Yeah. Yep. How about some uh, threats? I think you know, looking at the news flow, obviously commercial real estate is back in the headlines. Uh, it's not just New York Community Bank, although there are some specific uh, issues related to them. Uh, but, you know, more broadly speaking, there's been reports about, you know, 40% of commercial real estate loans needing to be refinanced within the next year or two. Uh, so there, that's back in the headlines again. Yeah, and I, I mean, rightfully so. I do think, and we discussed that last week of, we have these local community banks, which hold a good chunk of commercial real estate. If the banks are going through those periods where they're trying to refinance some of that commercial real estate and they're having a hard time doing that, you could see this more geographically localized issues pop up, not necessarily like broad market, public market, but just local communities actually going through some some struggling times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. It, uh, it does seem reminiscent of some of the bank issues that maybe hit, like, say, Texas in the 80s where oil prices fell. And so it was much more localized. And given the that it's mainly small and regional banks that have this commercial real estate exposure, seems unlikely that it's going to be this system-wide issue where it's more system-wide if it's the bigger banks right. that have that type of exposure, and they really haven't. And I also kind of think about it in terms of the timeline over which it might play out. You have to first go through the amend and extend period, and then the delay and pray period before it becomes a big problem. 
Brian, you've talked about this, but the fact that we have, you know, a good amount of private capital out there that is going into private credit and mm-hmm. private real estate that could come in and help, in essence, provide the capital and the liquidity that's needed for for those areas. So. Yeah, there are a lot more bargain hunters out there today than what there used to be. And they're much better coordinated where they can actually deal in volume. And yeah. that's mi- mostly through private real estate, private equity, or private credit. Not that it's going to be this full-fledged blow-up from our, our viewpoint, but more it could be just a drag or a headwind a bit for the economy that might not fester into the public markets, sure. but it could just be out there, right? Yeah, just like uh, another headwind, maybe not an imminent threat, but something that should be worked on would be like, let's say, debt on the government, right? right? I mean, as far as interest rates there. Yeah, and I, I don't even know where to begin on this one. The <laughs> Fed is definitely messaged, right? We're higher for longer. Yet fiscal policy is where it is, and we're running the deficit we are. Fiscal policy is higher deficits for longer? Yes, right. So it's <laughs> we are, in essence, as a government, shooting ourselves in the foot, trying to stimulate the economy, but we're not really stimulating the economy. It's just this is what our budget is, and we're not trying to rectify it, right? And we're not even in a recession yet. So it's at some point that debt that continues to have to be issued by our government at the rates that it is, is going to grow into a problem. It's not imminent, but it is something that just is going to continue to fester. Yep. So stay tuned every week, right? Right. (laughs) Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast. Headline strength this week. Kudos to the Fed's messaging. Headline weakness. I'd say hot inflation with cold spending. Headline opportunity. One man's garbage is another man's treasure. And our headline threat. Look out for value traps. Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, episode 91 for Monday, February 19th, 2024. Blaine Disrude, research analyst. Thanks. Thanks, Danny. And Dr. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you. Thank you. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.